Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Dave Nodig. And if this sounds like two old friends just yammering about all sorts of market esoterica, well, that's because it is. I know Dave for a long time, and we kind of fell in love with each other's books, music, film, and financial history when we first met 100 years ago. And so... If it sounds like just two idiots talking about really interesting stuff in great detail and me probably speaking more than I usually do during the podcast, well, that's probably because it is. Um, Dave is really a fascinating person with an incredible depth of knowledge about, well, he's probably best known as the ETF guy. And we literally talk about during the show, I got tagged to present to the SEC about their new single stock product. And my answer was, well, I get all my information about this from Nodig. Why don't you speak to him? And they said, we already do. But he also has an incredible depth of knowledge about market structures, about what people get wrong about thinking about systems, about what we get wrong about humans and capitalism and finance. And I find Dave to be really just an intriguing, fascinating guy full of great humility and insights. And I think you'll find this conversation to be really fascinating. With no further ado, my interview with Vetify's Dave Nodick. Let's start in the 1990s when you were at Barclays, which eventually becomes BlackRock iShares. Tell us about what you did at Barclays. Oh, well, I mean, mostly I got coffee at the beginning. <laughs> you know, in 1992, when I joined, uh, they gave me the highfalutin title of Managing Director of Corporate Strategy. What it really meant was I was picking up little businesses nobody else wanted to pay any attention to right. through all the acquisitions they were doing. So for a while, I ran Wells Fargo's 401k business mm -hmm. um, because they had acquired that as part of Wells Fargo Nico Investment Advisors. Uh, when we did the Barclays acquisition, when Barclays acquired Wells Fargo Nico, I then spent most of my time in Asia shutting down Barclays Desert Wed businesses, which were brokerage shops in Australia and Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan. Um, so I went around and sort of did some rationalization. They basically sent the young kid out to get his, you know, you know what handed go, to him. Go by get firing blood people. on your Yeah, on go, your hands, go fire right. a bunch of, you know, 69-year-old Japanese salarymen. That, that had to be a crazy experience being in Australia and Japan in the 90s. It was it was bonkers. And yeah. I was, very, to be clear, I was young and incredibly stupid. Right. Um, now I'm just older and slightly You're, less that, stupid. Isn't that a little redundant? <laughs> I say this, I say this not to mock the young, but to reflect on my own 
youthful indiscretions and stupidity. Well, the story of growing a career is recognizing how little you knew every previous five move years. You made. Or so, yeah, right? exactly. That five Just, year review is like, wow, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Yeah. Now I know, and then you find out. You really don't. Yeah. So I started. I started there. I was lucky enough to be um, on the edges of a product which became Webs, which became iShares. Um, I was absolutely not somebody driving the train on that. I was the one reviewing marketing copy and you know doing presentations to groups of institutions about how to use the darn things. Who who was driving the train on that? Oh my gosh, there were so many. I mean, you know, success has a thousand fall right. <laughs> fathers at this point. Failures the folks that I, I mean, so the people I was working with on the Wells Fargo Nico side, because this was a joint project with. Right. Stanley and other folks like that. Um, I was working with uh, Don Luskin, Patty Dunn, Fred Grower were sort of the main group. Blake Grossman was the chief investment I officer met Blake. there. Interesting guy. Um, yeah. He stuck around at you know post into BGI for the rest of his career. Right. Um, and so that was that was the crew that was really doing the hard work there. And then you know on the Morgan Stanley side, I was working with folks like Joanne Hill, who you know, um, it, Morgan Stanley, mm -hmm. one of the quants there. Um, and then of course all the folks who were coming in from the Amex, like Nate Most. I mean it was it was a pretty big group of. You left out Jim. Sense. Was he at, there at State Street um, afterwards? Yeah, that was that was. Yeah, Jim Ross was at right. State Street a little bit after that. When that was, but that was you know when the spiders build out. This was very much counter to to Spy having been launched. Oh, so really? We were the other side of the fence from that. Even wow. though Amex was the key, mm -hmm. you know, Amex was the glue holding it together because they'd figured out a lot of the how to do creation redemption, how to handle book. So let me fast forward a couple of years. You end up at ETF.com, which clearly is a or at least at the time, was a, a, a dominant force in the ETF space when a lot of the world of finance looked at ETFs a little askance, a little skeptically. Yeah, and that was really Jim Wyant. Uh, he started something called Index Universe with Stephen Schoenfeld, somebody mm -hmm. else you know in the industry, um, who's now working for, I believe, Market Vectors Indexes. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know they they had this vision of understanding that ETFs, which at that point were still largely institutional vehicles, early two thousands, right? I mean mm -hmm. there was some advisor pickup, but you had to be kind of on the front edge of right. finance or a quant or running your own models, which in two thousand three was not that common. Um, they had the vision there that oh no, this is where all of wealth management is going to head, um, and built a business which eventually through you know acquiring the right names and URLs became ETF.com, and then. We, you know, we, myself, Matt Hogan, Jim Wyant, uh, a bunch of other folks, built that business up into a, you know, pretty respectable, yeah. chunky business that had a big conference and a huge data. I was focused almost exclusively on the data side, um, and then we broke that into pieces. So I that was up, sold, though, wasn't it? Broke. It so was, when you say broke into pieces, uh, acquires in a along. positive way. Yeah, yeah that you know, wasn't like the like pieces a, ended up being worth more than the part, the, right, the whole, as the whole, right, that, which and is not uncommon. Not uncommon at all, especially when you're bolting together businesses that do, in fact, have have silos themselves. So the data business was a natural fit for FactSet, which needed US mm -hmm. ETF data. So Elizabeth Cash. FactSet is a, is a big big operator in that. And space. now they're now they're I think they're the we relicensed the data that I helped build over at Vetify, <laughs> right? I mean, I, they are now I still think the go-to source for primary ETF data. So that business continues to run over there and and you know and now here I am at Vetify doing largely a lot of the same work, also pushing a big conference that we're excited about exchange in Miami and Florida. We're going to talk about Vetify, we're going to talk about uh, exchange, which is one of my favorite events uh, every year. It's always a blast. Um, when you were running the conference beforehand, the old conference, this was yeah. at the Diplomat Hotel in Hollywood, Florida. Yeah. It was always late January, early February, which occasionally would interfere with my vacation schedule. I'm so but sorry. you know, to get out of New York in February and spend time with 
3,000 people and just absolutely A-list speakers. Um, you know, Derek Jeter and go, go. I remember um, Joe Montana. Yeah. Like the sports figures were always fascinating, but so too were the finance f- figures. You had people that were very much rock stars in that space. Yeah, and that was a that was an interesting time. I think the sort of the the ten years pre pandemic, so between GFC and and pandemic, whatever we're going to call that window. It's not a lost decade. It was a great decade, but in that window, like the con- I mean, you were on it too. The conference circuit was lit. Like, yeah, there absolutely. was there was a really interesting finance relevant event every other week at least all year long. Well, keep in mind what was going on back then. So first, you had the rise of ETFs. You had a radical expansion of passive. My my theory is post great financial crisis, mom and pop said, you know, we're done playing this game. Yeah. We're just going to put our money, let Mister Market do his thing, and and we'll find out how we did when we get ready to retire. Um, but you had that, you had ETFs, you had Rise of Passive, but you also had this incredible, uh, I, I'm reluctant to call it PTSD, but following the financial crisis, there was this pervasive negativity that lasted years and years and years. And to run around and say, hey, markets are positive here. You need to be more constructive because down 57% is a fantastic reset. That was kind of a lonely voice for a few years. I think that's a big part of why you had the hard metals people doing a lot of stuff. You had the rise of crypto. I mean, I think about, about say, that. Crypto, de- crypto is where that enthusiasm went. Everybody who was finance adjacent, tech positive, growth oriented, <clears throat> all of them went into crypto in that window, in that sort of GFC to pandemic window. Huh. That that makes a whole lot of sense. So there's a lot of other things I want to get to with you, but before we do. There's a quote of yours that I think is a great leaping off point for more discussion. Finance is a problem that has been solved. Explain. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we think about finance, when we, particularly when we think about investing, which is what we spend most of our time talking about, right? How to, how to take your wealth and turn it into more wealth through all of these tools out there from, you know, IPOs to derivatives. Um, how those pieces fit together is no longer a mystery. I mean, that's really the core of it. Um, the academic side of how to build a portfolio, we can argue about the details, right? And certainly we could have a whole conversation about, you know, okay, well, this combination of interest rates and inflation and expected returns on equities is different. And so maybe we need to adjust. But the tools to do that are largely baked. Anybody who has the curiosity and the basic intellectual capacity to learn about the markets can become a fairly sophisticated investor. So if you're an advisor, and I spend most of my time talking to the wealth management institutional business, if you're an advisor, you should not be spending a lot of your time trying to add alpha through understanding investing better than the rest of the market. That is a mugs game, right? So don't try to solve that problem. It's largely solved. You can go get some turnkey asset management program as an advisor. You could get somebody's model portfolio, or you could hire some you know, three CFAs and do it yourself. But it shouldn't be your primary focus. Your primary focus should be solving the much harder problem, which is actually working with human beings, right? The advice part of being a financial advisor is the hard part. That's the part where you should earn the money. We're kind of upside down in how we compensate and how we think about markets, right? Some advisor that's out there and can say, oh, I've generated 1% alpha for the last three years in my model portfolio. Everybody's going to talk about that. But when you talk to that same advisor and they say, yeah, you know, there are these five families I've worked with for 10 years. And because I've worked with them, 
generations of wealth are going to be preserved and these philanthropical exercises are going to be put forth like that's the real success story i don't need to tell you that that's your business right that's the real success story and that's much harder than investing really really quite quite interesting you have to explain to me the name of this firm i've given you grief about this what is Vetify. All right. So, well, the shortest answer about how to think about Vetify is we're Morningstar without a ratings business, right? Okay. So sort of like a financial think tank. Yeah. We're in the business of sitting in between asset owners, mm -hmm. financial advisors, institutions, retail, and asset managers, right? The BlackRock, State Streets, PIMCOs of the world, uh -huh. and helping them understand each other. What I spend most of my time doing is helping advisors understand the thousands of crazy ideas the asset management comes up with every year. Mm -hmm. And then I work with the asset management community to help them understand the hundreds of thousands of financial advisors and institutions who may or may not be interested in any of those products whatsoever. And so what that entails is a lot of good data, understanding what both sides want of each other. Mm -hmm. It understands it means having to understand markets, because if you're going to understand the asset management industry, you need to understand, well, why are managed futures part of the conversation here today, but not six months ago? And it means spending a lot of time talking to individual advisors and investors who are out there trying to do the real work. So that's where Vetify sits. The company, like the meat and the bones underneath it, brands folks know. Um, ETF Trends, ETF Database. We recently merged with Advisor Perspectives, which is the largest advisor newsletter in the country. Mm -hmm. So we've sort of cornered a market on this dialogue between asset managers and financial advisors, and it goes both ways. We also do a lot of polling with financial advisors. We meet them at conferences. We do surveys of them. We track their behavior as they're doing research using our data and analytics tools. And that lets us really get an interesting picture of, hey, what are advisors thinking this week? Well, we can kind of tell you because we know what they're researching. We know, you know how they answered poll questions last week. We know how they answered a survey two weeks ago. And then we write about that. We produce 50-odd pieces of content a day. So here's the question. Are your clients the advisors or are your clients the institutional asset managers or both? Both is the real answer. I think the way to think about this is we're a business to business organization in terms mm -hmm. of where, you know, if you're going to look at the revenue lines, but with B2C responsibilities, right? We take our relationship with the financial advisor very, very seriously. In my position, that's really almost exclusively what I focus on. All right. And this leads me to a question that I never in a million years thought I would get to ask on this show, but what the hell is a financial <laughs> futurist? Your title is a financial futurist. Yes. Who came up with that? Who? What are the responsibilities? What does a financial futurist do? So like the, I expect you to be in one of the little storefronts with the red light and people go in, tell me my financial and future. And I hand you a card right. through the glass. Right, yeah. exactly. And Madame Zoloff with the exactly. turban on and the whole nine yards, like big. Zoltar. I Zoltar, mean. thank right. you. Yeah. I know my bit. And I think it's actually a dude in the movie. But anyway, yes, it is. neither here nor there. Um, so look, about a year ago, I had a conversation with the senior management of the company as we were putting Vetify together, right? And we would, you know, one of the things we, we use as a hook when we talk about the company is we're trying to turn it from an industry to a community. What we mean by that is that we focus and finance a lot on rules, regulations, process, operations, none of which matter at all. 
And we often just ignore the fact that they're human beings at the end of this equation. Now, that's changed because of a lot of what's gone in behavioral finance, and I think that's great. I don't think it goes nearly far enough. I think human-centered organizations are always going to win. So we really tried to skew the organization towards that. So with that context, I said, here's a bunch of stuff I want to write about, which is the stuff we've been talking Mm -hmm. about, how the markets work, how people fit into them. And I literally just started putting adjectives and nouns on a piece of paper, trying to figure out, like, well, how do I describe the work that I think I should be doing and that hopefully people find at least entertaining, if not valuable? Uh, And a little from column A, a little column B, you know, I've spent most of my career writing and thinking about finance. Most of what I've done has been taking an understanding of the status quo, which is very brief because next mm-hmm. tomorrow it's gone, right. and trying to help people understand what that means for next week and the next year and the next decade to position products underneath it, like ETFs in 1992 or model portfolios in 2000 or direct indexing in 2010, right? Really trying to focus on that. Now it would be tokenized asset management. It's like you can see these things if you're paying attention. But it's super easy to get really excited and spend lots of money chasing them. Having some context is important. So you mentioned direct indexing. Let's go there because I always disliked the broad context of direct indexing as how it was done previously. Uh, I couldn't stand the 50 pages of stock holdings every month or every quarter. But I give you credit for the person who kind of turned me around on that. I don't want to say it was 10 years ago, but it was probably like five years ago, uh, maybe a little longer, that you pointed out there are a lot of things you can do with direct indexing in in terms of, and you were way ahead of the software. You had talked about things before it was available that you could tilt towards a variety of ESG things. Hey, show me companies where the board has at least two women on it, or you could tilt towards value, or you could tilt towards small cap, or you could use it for tax loss harvesting or philanthropy. And you kind of opened my eyes up. Full disclosure, we work with O'Shaughnessy's Canvas, which was recently purchased by Franklin Templeton. And we're the largest client of that. About a billion of three billion is in that. But I give you credit because if you hadn't opened my eyes to the advantages of what you can do with that, um, we might not have stepped as aggressively into it as we did. I was primed to and receptive to see the things that were possible. So full credit to you. Now tell us about what is tokenized financial investing. Well, so you know, if you think about right now, I have a million dollars I want to put to work. I wish. I have $100,000 I want to put to work. I have lots of different ways I can get that number to go up. And ultimately, let's be honest, that's what you care about as an individual investor. I have $100,000. I would like to have $110,000. How do I get there? And right now, we throw it into the stock market, and we effectively use a tokenized system, right? I mean, nobody really carries shares around anymore. You, no get, a ledger, you get a ledger entry at Seed & Company down on Water Street, right? Like it's, it's all just this fiction that we've created to keep track of notional ownership. And then we built this enormous infrastructure around it. So now we have payment for order flow and 17 market centers and you know, Reg NMS judging who, what has to get broadcast to who when. We made all this up. I think it's really important to remember this is fiction. We just created the system out of whole cloth. You can trace why, and there's lots of reasons, but you could invent another one. 
Inventing another one is what crypto has done. If you're in Europe right now, for instance, and you open up an account at FTX.de, which is, you know, FTX's European business in Germany, you can trade Tesla, but not as a stock. You can trade what is effectively a fungible token, right? Mm -hmm. A unit of Tesla. You and I can trade that in the FTX closed ecosystem all day long with no trading costs, no settlement, no slippage, no nothing. It's a bearer instrument. It's like me handing you a pencil. You just now have the pencil and I don't. And the legal claim is the fact that you've got it and I don't. That's scary for all sorts of reasons, but it's also incredibly powerful because if you imagine that world where instead of it being this closed ecosystem in Germany, it's just sort of how global markets work, all of a sudden, almost any beta, any risk, any ownership stake that you want, as long as you can get two people to agree on what the tokens mean and how they unwind to unlock some sort of underlying value, we can do all sorts of crazy stuff through the crypto rails that we could never have done before. You want to put together a portfolio? Great. Here's a smart contract. It owns these 15 other tokens that happen to be stocks. That can be managed in real time by the contract itself. Creation and redemption literally just becomes buying the thing. Meaning right. creation redemption of ETFs where you're assembling all right. the you individual could, you holdings within You create an ETF that. on the blockchain. People have already done this. This mm -hmm. is not news. Um, there's a thing called the set protocol call. You can create a portfolio with a set of rules, and you can even put in a fee of how much you want to get paid because you came up with the smart contract. And there's hundreds of thousands of these things out there already. So the the rails for doing it, the the smarts, the you know, people talk about Ethereum being the world computer, right? There's real truth to that. There's work being done by a computer there to keep track of ledger entries and to move those ledger entries around, which is the entire stock market. It's moving ledger entries around. So we're recording this on the same day that Matt Levine's Business Week... Opus. It, yeah. Right, dropped. <laughs> like, this is the second time in Business Week's history where one writer has written the entire A book. issue, yeah. right? It's like 50,000 words. And it begins by saying everything in the world these days that reflects ownership is a database. It's a database. You remind me of that in what you were talking about um, at FTX, which really raises the question, if everything is a database and the blockchain is a public and verifiable transparent database, the pushback to crypto continues to be, hey, it's been around for 15 years. How come it isn't doing anything yet substantially? Why is it still so experimental? and so small and i honestly don't know how to answer that question. Uh, it's regulatory that's the literally the, the one word answer is it's regulators that's it um the thing that is keeping the entirety of normal markets from collapsing and being replaced by free crypto software is that there are rules that won't let that happen mm -hmm. um and there are rules that are there for a very good reason right i mean we have a lot of securities laws in this country not because we're obsessed with lawmaking but because some bad stuff happened and we fixed it by making rules about it, right, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, going back to the twenties, actually going back to the fourteen hundreds. We have <laughs> rules about how we engage in these transactions, and the rule of law is a big deal. How that interacts with this sort of bearer bond instrument world, where literally ownership is the entirety of the law is unknown territory, right? We have to rewrite how we think about intellectual property, how we think about property rights themselves, um, how we think about ownership and escrow. And Those security are, and is security a big is one. security is a huge one. Knowing yeah. your customer is a big one. Anti-money laundering. Those are real issues. So I don't want to I don't want to pretend that those aren't real issues. And they're going to take years to solve. This is not something we're not going to flip a switch tomorrow. 
But what I fear is going to happen is because the block is now regulatory, we're going to end up in the world's biggest regulatory arbitrage race Mm -hmm. where you're going to. And we've already seen this. There are jurisdictions where you can kind of get away with doing anything you want to do in crypto. And hey, I'm sorry if you lost a million dollars. Call Interpol. Maybe they'll figure it out for you. Right. right? And then there's jurisdictions like the United States, which are quite locked down. Mm -hmm. The problem is that if I'm right, if the world does move more quickly towards this and you start seeing capital follow it more than it even has already, you end up with this weird haves and have nots world where the United States actually ends up on the sort of butt end of innovation um, and plays catch up for the next 20 years. And another financial center will emerge where the IPOs are happening, where private equity is is really congealing, um, where interesting M&A activity is happening. And it ain't going to be New York. I'd like to push against that. I'm kind of a fan of the United States. I wouldn't mind us leading here. I think you live here also. I, I believe I do. Yeah. So you would like to see leadership from the U.S. and it, it just there just happened. is none. There seems to be no interest in a crypto ETF. What's that about? Well, is it just yeah. Gary Gensler or is that more institutional? Um, so the Bitcoin ETF debate, right? And Grayscale is now suing the SEC. Always a great move, suing your regulator. That right. always works out great. They love to be sued. <laughs> they love, they they love, love it. So they, they just say yes after you sue them. But here nor there, yeah, so people have been trying to put Bitcoin in an ETF wrapper, frankly, since Bitcoin was invented. Um, And the problem is it makes you have to define what Bitcoin is because there are certain things you can put into a mutual fund or ETF Mm -hmm. wrapper and certain things you can't, right? You can't put a steak dinner in an ETF wrapper. There are rules about it. And uh, nobody's been able to agree yet whether or not Bitcoin belongs in those wrappers. So we've ended up with these weird edge cases where the futures-based products get approved, but the species-based product... I mean, the species products can't be, and it's it's an absolute mess. It's the front end of the problem we're talking about, where mm-hmm. crypt, where crypto regulation is actually the largest problem in the space. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. So let me push back a bit because I became dramatically enamored of an idea of smart contracts and using them. Let me preface this by saying I'm not a big fan of Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which is now a monopoly. There are some just ridiculous fees, and the whole thing is just an egregious affront to free market capitalism. Hold that aside. But the idea behind smart tickets that if Taylor Swift says, I'm going to put all of my concert seats on a blockchain, and so therefore... I'm going to offer the first round to my hardcore fans who have been newsletter subscribers for years, and the next I'm going to give to my junior fans, and then the last one I'll open to the public. And by the way, built into this is if you decide to sell it at a markup, I get half of that markup, but in no cases can it be higher than X. And so you stop the, you know, you basically demolish the entire um, StubHub, SeatGeek, absolutely egregious how do we use bots? You know, if they were just reselling tickets, it's one thing. But they seem to have gamed the system. Oh, so yeah. They, and they buy all the tickets. They buy they, the yeah, tickets yeah, first. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's a reason why artists offer their tickets at affordable prices to their fans. And these um, rentiers in the middle, 
are abusive. So all this comes back to if the technology exists for that, why haven't we seen a major artist? Who, who was it? Was it Pearl Jam tried to buy? They tried to yeah get out of Ticketmaster. Yeah. Uh, Nobody seems to so, be able to come up with a way the, to do this. So the reason is because, you know, when we look at how the corporate economy works, there are investments that you have to make. Like the Ticketmaster one's a great example because the technology to do that is trivial. We could stand them up on three of the computers here in this control room right, right. now. That's the easy part. The hard part is it's Madison Square Garden Friday night. It's 7 o'clock, and you have 25,000 people you have to get through the gate in the next hour to get to the Taylor Swift concert that's about to go live. That infrastructure, having 45 guys standing there with the scanners, going to the network, confirming your ownership that this is the ticket. It's already been used once. It hasn't been used twice. That infrastructure. But you use that right now. Every time I, I saw Hadestown, and they don't even scan the ticket. You put your phone on a device. And it goes big. Right. Yeah. It just, it's not, you're not even looking the, at a QR behind code. Behind all of that is a whole bunch of trust infrastructure right. that says the digital signature coming off Barry Ritholtz's wallet. Uh -huh. is the thing that says they can go see Hadestown, right? That infrastructure is actually the hard part because implied in that is a whole lot of rule of law stuff. Like, wait a minute, Barry and I show up at the same time with the same ticket. How do we determine which one of us is the one that actually got to go in? How do we determine which one of us owns it? What's the recourse if you stole it from me? In other words, if someone took a scan of that QR right. code, that's the problem with so QR enforcement codes. and and the the last mile of all of these things. Like the this is the part that I always I sort of come back Doesn't to. Doesn't blockchain solve that? I've been told <laughs> over and over again. Oh, Bitcoin fixes that. Bitcoin solves everything except it's not molecular, right? It's right. still digital. At the end of the day, most of the things we actually give a you know what about are molecular. Mm -hmm. We want the coffee cup. We want to go to the space to see the event right. where sound waves propagate through the. Air from another human being on stage at the end of the day you've got to have that interface between the virtual and the real otherwise none of this matters at all and it's precisely that boundary that is the problem right now so let's talk a little bit about a conference i have participated in the etf exchange over the years vetify just purchased this from advisor circles i'm an uh, investor in advisor circles so i don't know any of all that right stuff. <laughs> so full disclosure we're talking about something that i kind of have an interest in or i used to have an interest in but i'm still a participant in the event well we'll uh, see whether we get you an invite right that's yeah. right listen I, I i always feel like more disclosure is better than less fair disclosure enough, so enough. i'll let the lawyers sort that the part, out but... the part i pay attention to is the content so let's talk a little bit about ETF exchange. This has always been just a massive event. You mentioned earlier in the heyday of financial conferences. This, I think, was one of the biggest events I went to each year. Yeah, I th we probably need to point out that like this is in some ways the spiritual successor to the old Inside ETFs event. That event is still going on, and I, I don't want to pretend that it doesn't exist. It is now owned by a big conference company named Informa, and they still put on those events. Wealthstack was an event that you all used to do with them. That's now part right. of that event. Again, more disclosure. So Informa ran... Uh, Wealthstack, Inside ETFs. Right. They, we were partners yeah. with them for Wealthstack, which... Ran one year, and we were ready to do the next one when the pandemic hit. That's the only reason and why we, we everything didn't do got juggled. One. Everything got juggled. And up. then after everything reopened, right. their staff had left. It was a whole craziness. The whole world sort of reset. And so um, we worked with Advisor Circle on Future Proof, not with Informer, because they were kind of there in Europe, and they were a little skittish when the U.S. was reopening. But hold all that nonsense aside. Tell us a little bit about 
why have uh, an ETF conference? You know, isn't ETFs a settled area? Tell us a little bit about this uh, event. Well, no, because ETFs are where everything interesting in the world is still happening. I mean, uh -huh. I think that's part of the part of the reason I'm still in the ETF business, although I don't have it in my title anymore, is that regardless of what you're trying to get done with that $100,000 you're trying to make go up, mm -hmm. ETFs are probably the right answer under the hood in terms of the structure. So whether you're trying to get managed futures from an active manager or you know two-month treasuries, T-bills, like the, the whole spectrum is now available in the close to 3,000 ETFs we have trading here in the U.S. It's like the mutual fund business back in the 80s. It's so you have more ETFs than stock. There are stocks just about. Getting close. Yeah. Getting close. What is it, like 3,500 stocks in the Wilshire yeah. 5,000? Well, in, in the world, it's like 30,000 actual tickers out there right. in the world. But the point is, there are more ETFs than you could ever possibly use in one portfolio. Right. Most people probably only need a handful to accomplish whatever objectives they're going to do. But the reason why we have an event around it is because so much of the interesting innovation in finance happens through that structure because the ETF structure lends itself naturally to the sort of movement of risk from bucket to bucket in a very retail friendly package. It's sort of like the best thing we've come up with. It's like people ask, like, well, why are trains a certain width? Well, because history just sort of got us to this configuration where now everything runs that way and nobody's going to invent a new gauge of train right. track. Um, this, these are the rails that we have at the moment and probably for the rest of my career. The ETF still looks like the most efficient set of rails anybody's figured out how to put down. So why have a conference about it? Well, uh, largely because we want to get those interesting conversations going. I, my perspective on exchange is I'm there to have interesting conversations. And when I'm talking to a bunch of financial advisors and a bunch of finance investment management types, that tends to be the most interesting conversation because you get the real human use in the room and you get the real human smarts in the room. And that's when the magic happens. So whether it's getting a bunch of folks on stage to have a really interesting conversation about you know, geopolitical concerns in Ukraine, or whether it's just being able to have a small breakfast with four or five advisors and some academic where we talk about behavioral finance, those are the interesting conversations. So exchange is really all about creating that sense of community between groups of folks. And some of that's content that's on the stage, and a lot of it isn't. We learned that, I think, at Future Proof. This is a community event. Yeah. This is about people getting together and exchanging ideas. And I think that's a lesson we've learned from the pandemic, not just from that conference. People want to get together and talk. You know, it's funny because financial conferences, and maybe conferences in general, everything's based on an academic model. And people took the big lecture halls out as their frame of reference. Hey, a bunch of people on stage talking to a bunch of people in the audience taking notes. But the most interesting part of college wasn't necessarily the big lecture halls. It was the class lets out and you start to talk to people about, hey, could you explain this? I don't understand what's going on. And then the subsequent conversations, that's the really exciting driver, not you know, the panel of people telling you, here's why interest rates are going to go up or down and, yeah. and, and what's wrong with inflation today. So based on that, let's dive a little bit into some of the innovations in finance and ETFs you reference. Let's start with active ETFs. Uh, they were looked at kind of skeptically a few years ago. Hey, ETFs are all about low cost passive indexing. 
why do I want an active ETF? Well, the short answer is because if you're an active manager, it's the only way you're going to get any customers. Right. So right. Like, there's a bit of a there's just a bit of reality in that. I mean, at this point, we're still something like 10, 12 percent of the flows, the assets are are inactive. It's a still a fairly small number. How much of that is just Ark and Kathy Woods versus everybody? A else? decent chunk, but the, remember, a lot of the fixed income complex is actually managed, right? Uh, most of the right. all of products. It. I, I want to say most, the vast majority of it. Well, is. I mean, there's like TLT. You get the big, right. you know, treasury. Funds, LQD and HYG, and those are sort of big betas in fixed income, and that's where the biggest funds are. But if you get below that tier, you know, all the PIMCO funds, anything sort of interesting being done at the short end, even like a lot of the short treasury stuff is technically actively managed because it moves right. so fast you couldn't possibly want to try right. to trade and, on an in index. And the academics have demonstrated that active actually creates worthwhile returns in bonds. Where it's certainly at least the evidence is a little stronger, right? Yeah, a lot stronger than versus equities, where there's really no argument left. Yeah, so this is one of those things where my personal belief system tends to I have to check that at the door. The reality of the market right now is active management is a thing in the ETF space. Mm -hmm. While it is still a fairly small part of flows, call it between ten and twenty percent in a given period, um, it's an enormous part of revenue because most of these funds charge more. Right. Right. They're not so, charging five bips. They're charging exactly. seventy five. Exactly. So you know they may only. Be 10% of the assets, but they're more like 30% of the revenue. Really? And That's so an amazing... Active managers are a big deal in the ETF space now. And I would also point out, a lot of the ones that have been successful um, and are continuing to gain assets... Whether or not they're putting up alpha or not, I think is always a tricky question. It seems like an easy one, but there's a lot of misbenchmarking that goes on. In this yeah, business. that's a great and, cheat. Yeah, like we're going to make our benchmark much easier. And and in fixed income, this is really an issue because a lot of people just default to benching against the ag when right. they have no intention. The Bloomberg of Barclays ever aggregate bond yeah. index. And you know, most people who are an active bond manager. Like they're focused on credit, right? They're focused on a, a niche. They've got oh, I am working on securitized stuff, whatever. They're not right. trying to eke out fifty basis Beat points. Beat the ten year, ag, right? Right. They're not even owning the long treasuries or any of that stuff. So the apples to apples thing is a real issue. Mm -hmm. Putting that to the side, if you look at what Kathy Wood's done at the Arc team, right? Their their performance, really interesting. their performance has been awful, and their flows have been solid. Meaning money is not leaving. When let that me happens. let me annotate that slightly. Since 2020, their performance has been awful. Yeah, so I, I'm but leading recently. up to oh, like blow the doors in off. 2020, no one even came in second. But they were blew the doors. Off. I think yeah. she was plus 160 percent in 2020 when the market from the lows, the, from the lows, the market was up 68 percent, and I think it was up 18 percent for right. the year. That, just astonishing. This numbers. pattern of sort of high innovation growth managers, we've mm -hmm. seen this several times, not just in the dot com era, although we pl oh. saw plenty of it then. Oh no, this repeats like, all the time. You look, you look over a long cycle, and it's like, well, they kind of did what the S and P 500 did over 10 years, but boy, but did more they expensive, go up, like, right. and with crazy up and down along the right. way. But if you look at that. They've managed to hang on to investors. You look at things like um, Andrew Beer's DBMF, which is the really the interesting the hedge product, fund, pulled in a billion dollars this year. Really? Yeah. Um, Good it, for him. It's up thirty percent. I mean, that's why. Wow. Um, but I also think it's a solid strategy. You know, it's effectively a quant model that's duplicating that sort of CTA style of management. Has done very well. There are a lot of little pockets like that where you can say, oh, here's an active manager 
who's providing an interesting beta that other people aren't really getting access to. Right. And they're doing it in a, in, in a you know more useful and interesting way that there's also some story behind. You understand why you're doing it now. You understand what it means when rates go up another 75 bips. Um, that, I think, has become pretty important. So as much as I'm personally still a pretty strong skeptic of active management, I mean, I understand the math and the, the odds are not in your favor as an active manager. Right. You have to be doing something both incredibly disciplined and incredibly well to have any success there. I think we're now in a market where we'll be able to pick those people out. Now, whether they're coin flippers who just happen to get, you know, get heads 20 yeah. times in a row or not, history will judge. But there's demand from advisors, there's demand from institutions, there's definitely demand from retail, and there's plenty of supply in the asset management business side. So, I rem first of all, Andrew Beer was a previous guest. I find him to be a really fascinating yep. guy. If I recall correctly, he started doing hedge fund replications in an ETF. Yep. I don't know how well those have done, but it wouldn't surprise me that managed futures replication given how much commodities have run up and run down, if you're doing a trend-following model, which a lot of the managed futures do, and I'm assuming yeah. he found a way to create, that could be a giant winner. Yeah, and it has been, right? So that is you know, a little bit of a lightning in a bottle, right place, right time. I mean, that fund was around for a year or two before people paid any attention did, to How it. did the hedge fund replication work out? So most of the hedge fund replication products have not done particularly well. Index IQ launched a bunch of those about a decade they're ago. They're pricey to execute. They're I don't mean just the cost, execute, but they're pricey to run. But they're also, um, there's, there's also a mismatch. And anytime somebody says, I'm going to replicate this unobtainable pattern of returns with this <laughs> obtainable pattern of returns because I can watch in the mirror and see what they're doing and then replicate it over here. I read all those academic papers. I understand where the math comes from. I'm very skeptical about them, not because I think people get the math wrong, because I think the world changes. The lag. The lag is deadly. Right. And you and world, I have talked about the this The world before. changes constantly, right? In fact, you and I had a conversation that when you perceive the world, you're already perceiving it on a lag because of how long it takes for life. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the foundation of the how I view, like my financial futurist model starts with the premise that our understanding of how humans work is wrong to start with. Like, mm -hmm. so just the nature of human existence, we've all got wrong. So therefore, any certainty you apply to anything else in the universe, you've got to put with a huge grain of salt. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. I want to stick with ETFs okay, sorry. before we... No, no, I brought it up but because uh, it's so fascinating. But, so we haven't talked about thematic ETFs, yep. biblical, partisan, our friend Perth Toll's Economic FRDM, Freedom. Yeah. And then there's another one that does emerging markets. DMCY does uh, emerging and developed markets. I think that's the one. Right. And that's got sort of a broader methodology. Mm -hmm. Perth Toll's FRDM is just emerging markets, ex China, you know, which is ex -China people use it Russia. as ex China. It's not just ex China, right. it's ex dictatorships. Ex right. And, you right. Know, which has worked out really. Another it's one. Phenomenal. Another right. example of an idea that right time, right place this year has been. Another big right, but run. we we both know she spent you know five to ten years in the trenches getting right. to the point for the overnight success. That's right. right. That's how it, that it always, always takes works. ten years to be um, an overnight. So success. the thematic stuff uh, definitely interesting. I think mostly driven by advisors need to have stories to talk to their clients about. That's not pejorative. Some, so, I well, think that's that's a real. Some thing. of the stories though, and and my pushback on the thematics are all right. I can understand the concept behind. What happens if we invest in emerging markets but leave out the worst players like Russia and China? That has worked out well this year. The ones where I only want to invest in Republican or Democratic companies or I want to do these sort of biblical-based investing, they seem to be more emotional, and history has told us emotions are the enemy of 
good investing. Yeah, I, I'm not a super fan of most of that stuff. Uh, I, I do think that there's a place for thinking about stewardship. And again, part mm-hmm. of my longer thesis on how the world works, um, corporate ownership, who controls what companies do, is probably a lot more important than who's elected in office. We'll, we'll talk a bit about and, ESG in, in the next but, segment. But that's but, what all that is. So right. that, all that woke, anti-woke investing stuff, that's applying these sort of emotional labels about the world to our investments. And I'm with you. I don't think that that makes a ton of sense. I think there's some threads there around voting right. that make some sense. But most of that stuff, I don't like how it's sold more than I don't like how it's built. Where I think things get a little tricky is when it's like the, what I call headline funds, you know, electric cars, uh, future food, work from home, valid approaches, mm-hmm. but they're really so targeted towards, well, is there going to be a big headline like work from home, pandemic, go, right? They're really just headline bait. And I think those are interesting speculative plays for folks that do that for a living, but right. I don't think they really belong in people's long-term portfolios. I, I don't recall a whole lot of work-from-home ETFs in 2019. Was that yeah, a thing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's or, sort or of my point. Or is it now? Yeah. It, it's already come and gone. So last ETF question, why on earth does anyone need a single-stock ETF? So we've got a raft of these things that have come out. The SEC's, I think, going to clamp way down on them. The but, short answer is they don't. <laughs> the use case for a single stock ETF leverage. is you either it's an access to, to leverage that you couldn't get otherwise. Two to one plus two to one is four to one. It, <laughs> right? That's how math works. Right. Um, well, well, you could you can own a two to one or a three to one single stock ETF. You could buy it on margin. So you could go four or six to one, which is kind of against. It's funny because I got invited to speak at the. SEC thing. And I'm like, you should speak to Dave Nodding. <laughs> and they said, yeah, yeah, we, we already have him on his, our yeah. list. I'm like, that's where I get my answers. So let me cut out the middleman. Go talk to him. Yeah, I'll be talking to them about that. So like, they have a use case. If you want to be get leverage and you don't want to use your margin account or you ran out of margin in your margin account, that yeah, that's a narrow use case. More importantly, if you want to short something, right? So Tesla you can't Q, get a borrow. Tesla Q is the one that's like the only one that has any of the assets right now, and it's mm-hmm. the short Tesla fund. The biggest benefit of those, and I can't, can't believe I'm saying this out loud, is you can only lose all your money. Like that's you can actually, only lose a hundred percent. You can only lose all your money. That's it. Where do I sign up for that? <laughs> that sounds fantastic. But that's, As but opposed that's, to futures that theoretically you or, put up a hundred or direct shorting, and you right. can lose a thousand. Direct shorting, finding, getting a locate, and you getting know, a short. Theoretically, you you know you have one really bad day and you can be out more than your account, right? More certainly yeah, more okay. than your position. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I mean, Though, but we are splitting hairs. The yeah. short answer, Barry, is they don't really have much of a use case for most investors. The the fake ADRs, like Roundhill had filed for like you know get Samsung, which doesn't have an ADR and you can trade it like it's an ADR. Mm-hmm. That one that actually makes sense. Has, that one has some utility. Wait, I can't buy they Samsung. Shut, they as shut an those ADR. things. <laughs> Right down. Oh, really? Yeah. None of them are listed. Why? Why not? Um, because there are reasons we have ADR rules, right? That's part of the reason that you have to go through the process of getting a depository receipt listed is that there then rules about what that means in terms of voting and ownership and reporting and all that jazz. Why doesn't Samsung trade as an ADR on the, on the New York Stock Exchange? I don't understand that. It's because they don't want to go through the process of becoming Oh, they just an don't ADR. care. They well, don't care. yeah, I mean, they'd have to do reporting that they don't. I mean, I'm guessing a little bit because I don't live in their boardroom, but right. you know, they have reporting that they'd have to do they don't want to do they've got american investors they don't want to have to talk to you know they've got requirements that the nisey would put on them that's like, amazing why would you bother and and also you end up in the situation we have right now with baba where you end up with the oh, i mean baba's not an adr it's a it's, an, it's a direct list but you end up with this issue where you've got multiple jurisdictions 
governing a country. Right. And it becomes that's, difficult. It's messy. Right. Especially anything out of China these days are yeah. really problematic. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, I said no more ETF questions. I got to ask you the mutual fund question. And you and I, again, have talked about this in the past. If mutual funds were a brand new product, would they be approved in 2022 by the SEC? Absolutely not. No way. They would not. No. Tell us why. Because the ETF structure is inherently more tax fair. And that sounds like a weird No, it's 100% true. The problem with mutual funds, if you launch them today, is that the pitch would be, hey, we're going to pool our investors but for tax purposes, if you sell out, eh, you can take care of your own stuff. But we're going to book that gain over here with all of these other investors, right. send them all of a check and make all of them restate your base, their basis because you decided you went out on a Tuesday. Phantom tax gains. Exactly. That's, is, and that would be a non-starter today. End of day pricing. Right. <laughs> Which, and, by and the way, works pricing. great in a 401k. Yeah. So it's... Look, I I, tr- I try not to spend a lot of time imagining how I think the world should be today and spend more of it trying to focus on the way the world is today and might end up. We have mutual funds now. They're not going to go anywhere because they're baked into our retirement system. They're a better fit for that specific purpose than ETFs because of fractional shares. There's no economic incentive for anybody to change any of that. So I'm going to die, and my 401k is going to be in mutual funds. That's probably what's hmm. going to happen, right? Whenever, whether that's tomorrow or 40 years from now, I don't think mutual funds are going away because there's no reason for anybody to usurp it. Unless we literally throw out the 40 Act and rewrite the securities laws of this country, the mutual fund's going to exist. You're channeling Ray Dalio's quote, it's the role of the investor to deal with the world as, as it, it is, is, not yes, as how they want it. 100%. I'm a huge fan of that quote. Huh. Fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about a quote from you that I'm perplexed about, and that is, the answer to every question starts at the beginning and gets just as detailed as you need it to be until you've satisfied the need. What does that have to do with finance? (laughs) Well, look- the world is infinitely complex, right? Yes. That, I think we can get down that, that road. Wait, right? it's like, not black and white? It's not black and white. There, bumper stickers aren't right. the answers to our problems? And to, to, get like, to get really like neurophilosophical about it, as human beings, we walk around looking for affordances. And what that word means is like we look for the handle on the cup, right? Uh-huh. And we, so when we see a cup and there's a handle on it, we can say, oh, I've seen this before. I understand that's a thing I can grasp, and I understand how my hand works, and so now I can get the cup of coffee. Right. If all we're trying to do is drink the coffee, that's as far as we need to go, right? We get the affordance that allows us to work in the environment that we're in. Our model of the universe doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be good enough to get us through the day. And it's going to be imperfect. That's the other thing I think that is an important thing for anybody who's in the business of dealing with human beings for a living around emotional subjects, which is the job of financial advisor, understanding that, oh, everybody lives in their own little interpreted reality where some people understand the molecular structure of the cup and some people literally just have in their head, oh, handle coffee drink. Right. And both of those are okay depending on what your purpose is. What does that have to do with finance? 
Well, in finance, we approach that constantly. The markets. Just think about we talk about the markets. Okay, do you understand the markets? Well, mm -hmm. yes and no, right? Yes, you understand the basics of like what's going across the ticker and what your mm -hmm. clients need to do. Do you really understand at a really detailed level exactly how payment for order flow impacts capital requirements at the DTCC? No, you don't <laughs> need to. It's not important to what your job is until something breaks. Right. And so part of my job as a financial futurist is to go down a lot of those rabbit holes so that when when the world blows up and everybody's like payment for order flow is the worst thing in the world. I'm not starting from square one saying, what does PFOF stand for? I've already understood. Uh -huh. oh, OK, here's the mechanics of how this go. What am I missing? I haven't looked at it in eight weeks. Maybe the world changed so I can do the update to get current. But I'm not starting from scratch every day. And I hopefully that's some of the value. So funny you mention understanding what's going on when the world breaks. The book I love to give to younger people who are getting started in markets is Tim Metz's Black Monday. Because even today, most people have no idea what happened during the 87 crash. And it's exactly as you've described. It is the logistics, the plumbing, the day-to-day -day operations that you don't realize that every decision that's made has ramifications deep into the future for how markets operate. I'll give you one little weird side note on that. So 87, I was 21 years old or something like mm -hmm. that. I was living in Hollywood, California. I had a little tiny bit of money invested, maybe five grand that my grandfather had given me in a Smith Barney account or something mm -hmm. like that. You know, 87 happened pretty much lost most of it, whatever. But I became fascinated at that moment by what the hell just happened. Right. Years later, literally four or five years later, I've gone and gotten an MBA. I'm studying investment finance. In the back of my head, constantly, I'm like, I want to understand what that is. So I read everything about it. I end up working for Wells Fargo Nico in the very early, like 91 or something like that. Lo and behold, I start going through stacks of stuff on portfolio insurance because they were a huge right. writer of right. that at the time. And, right, And that was a key Big factor. index provider. So it's like, and I had never, at that point, I had not been down that rabbit hole. There was no internet to go search on that. Now I had access to all of these internal documents about like what was actually going, and none of it was hidden. It was all part of congressional right. testimony. Right, it was all out there. The giant SEC report that came out afterwards. And, and it was just, anyway, my point is it's fascinating to understand, to me, it's fascinating to understand how the pieces actually work versus how we think they work, because they're never the same. One of the things in the book that was always so vivid to me, and I, I'm sure I'm going to misquote this, but they used to run the prints from the Chicago futures pits into the floor of the New York Stock Exchange so you could see how the futures were trading and marry that with portfolio insurance. And suddenly... It's a vicious cycle downwards as it just be there is no bottom in that. And that's how you end up with a down 22 percent day on on the Dow when it should have been, you know, a run of the mill, seven, eight percent correction. But part of the reason that's so interesting is that the mechanics of that are now gone. Right. right? The world doesn't work that way anymore. But people are the same, right? right? They, like Neanderthals are pretty much doing the exact same emotional buy-sell, you know, greed-fear trade-off in that cycle. And so, what happened in '87 was a cycle that was, ha you know, I don't know, had a had a cycle time of 20 minutes. Now it has a cycle time of 20 milliseconds. But at the end of the day, you still have people making those decisions. So another quote of yours is: "History tells us mostly about what people did." when faced with a specific set of constraints and inputs. 
how does that affect traders and investors in, in markets? Well, so, you know, you do this on your podcast, right? You talk to a lot of very professional, very successful people. That's mm -hmm. why it's called Masters in Business, right? The challenge with that is I think it's very easy to get hung up on the thing that they did, not why they did it and what they needed to be able to do it. So we look back at, I don't know, Simons, right? People who were wizards of Wall Street, and we, we revere My white them. whale, who I still haven't right. gotten on the podcast. So, you know, we revere Warren Buffett, right? And we said, like, you know, and people write books about them and all these things. And often what they end up looking like is hero worship. The more interesting question is, okay, Buffett's been really successful. Instead of trying to figure out what is it about Buffett that was better, I think it's much more interesting to look at, well, okay, what was the pond? that he was fishing in who were his who were his colleagues what were his information sources what kind of capital constraints did he have or what lack of capital constraints mm -hmm. did he have versus competitors that's what makes him an interesting story now of course he wouldn't be successful he wasn't also sharp and brilliant and good at his job and good with people but I think it's much more interesting to look at those decisions as sort of contextual reactions to their environment, as opposed to revering them as like, well, we should all invest like Warren Buffett. No, we should all have the, the perspicacity to invest like Warren Buffett when Did. presented with that right. exact set of situations. It, it's about yeah. process. And, and one of the things I, I really go out of my way to avoid is the classic survivorship bias, because that's why one of my favorite questions is always, what do you know today that you wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you started? Because I want to give people an opportunity to say, oh, I messed this up or I didn't know this. Otherwise, it's I, that's the criticism of, you know, good to great. Here are 12 companies that did fantastic yeah, exactly. in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And then you look forward a decade and half of them are either out of business or gone or wildly underperforming the market. Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. Um, so I, I, I get very skeptical of hero worship. I'm much more interested in understanding decision making. So like, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of like great business books, I'd rather focus on um, like Choices, Values and Frames by Kahneman Tversky versus anything Mountain Gladwell's ever written. I, I thought you were going to go with Moneyball right over well, there. Well, no, but like I, I, actually Moneyball is a great counterexample where that's a great narrative. It's a great story. But I think that the lesson some people get out of Moneyball is, oh, there was this one sharp kid in the right place at the right time and he really did something amazing and got just enough people to pay attention and got really lucky and isn't that a great story where the real thing is, okay, what is it about that environment that made a difference? This was mm -hmm. somebody who focused on data when other people People thought data was irrelevant. Mm -hmm. They got nerdy when people were thinking it was hunch. The same thing happens in markets all the time, right? When people get nerdy, but other people are focused on the emotions, there's often a real opportunity there, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, now you're dealing with the system, not with the people. You've mentioned another book that I think is fascinating as history, The Right Stuff. Tell us about what the right stuff has to do with yeah, so, investing. Well, again, so the, the, I'm glad you made and that history. bridge because I think Moneyball is an interesting example there. To me, Moneyball is interesting, not for the like act like this dude, but as a character study to understand how human beings reacted there. So like um, in The Right Stuff, which was the example I was using in the email I sent you, I'm like a lot of people my age and Gen X fascinated by the Apollo program mm -hmm. and read everything and seen every documentary and built all the models when I was a kid. Yep. Right. I mean, it was the the Wild West. of our You're youth. too young to have been called down to the assembly when one of the I think the first Apollo landed on the moon or circle. Yeah, but I remember watching on TV as yeah. a kid sitting on the couch. Right. So like very, very real to me. Um, and so I felt like by the time I was 16, I felt like I had a pretty nerdy understanding of mm -hmm. the Apollo program. But then you start reading stuff like Tom Wolfe and the right stuff. 
Um, did you read it or did you, full disclosure, I watched the movie, I never read the no, book? No, I read the book. I read yeah. the book when it came out. And the reason I loved it, again, was not because it told me anything about how they made the Landers. It was because it was like, holy crap, this was an ego farm. Like, mm-hmm. this was a whole, like, it felt like Wall Street. Okay, here are a bunch of extremely high-performance, almost exclusively dudes mm-hmm. with enormous egos who are going to work collectively to do something nearly impossible, that's why that's an interesting story. It could be about, you know, the dream team hockey, right? The fact that it was about these, like, super high-performance people all interacting with each other for a common goal, that's what I think was interesting about it. And I think if you learn something from the Apollo program, it should be about that, not about, like, well, government spending did this and we invested in... No, 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 no. This was about creating a community of people around a common goal. So you mentioned what we get wrong about markets. What else do we get wrong about the state of the world? Well, uh, so much. So the most interesting thing I think that's markets related is probably what's going on in economics. I'm a big fan of Ole Peters. He runs something called ergodicity economics Mm -hmm. from the London. Define ergodicity because every time I look it up, it seems Google gives me a different... You know, reductionist answer. So, look, with the caveat that I'm neither a mathematician nor an economist, and neither are you either of those things by training, um, fundamentally, we assume certain things about how money and markets work. A big one is that when you average something over time, mm-hmm. you end up with similar answers to when you average things over populations, right? So, if meaning I make, a meaning snapshot if, versus a longer term right, picture. If you flip a coin a thousand times, we can come up with similar expected values to if we have a thousand people flip a coin once. Mm-hmm. Right? The connection between those is the ergodic assumption, right. as I understand it. And if I'm wrong, I'm sure people will send me hate mail. <laughs> a lot of what we do in economics is based on that sort of fundamental mathematical assumption that, that you don't have to worry too much about those things. The problem with that is that it's frankly not true. Something as simple as starting conditions. You can do this with just the coin flip experiment, right? If you and I flip coins and you flip heads four times in a row, top to bottom, and I just you know, I just randomly, you know, heads, tails, heads, tails, but we're betting $100 on each one. I will probably never catch up to you mm-hmm. because you are you know, path dependent. Your Absolutely. path dependency on those starting conditions of like you flip that coin heads five times in a row. You now have capital. You have opportunity. You can make smaller bets that are a lower Kelly number. Like you get you all get the sorts flywheel. Of, you, you get, get all, all sorts, sorts of, of stuff right. going on. And because I flipped two tails off the beginning. I'm screwed. Right. That is a non-ergodic function, right? Because that's not the same as saying, well, we're going to have 10,000 people go through that same experiment. On average, everybody's going to flip heads and tails about even. So you're saying sequence of returns matters, and you're agreeing with Bill Sharp that that's one of the toughest problems in all of finance. Absolutely. Is how do you model drawdowns and withdrawals in retirement if you get unlucky or lucky in the beginning of your retirement. The implications are actually much more profound than that, however, which is that because we've set up capitalism, not just your portfolio, but global capitalism bakes these assumptions in, we end up with things like runaway problems, which Mm -hmm. we see all over the place, right? The rise of the billionaire class. It is no longer the case in modern democratic capitalism that the best idea best executed is the one that will win. Mm -hmm. It's the best idea that's best executed that also has very good starting conditions and access to capital. That's the one that wins. So another quote of yours, the here and now is never an accident. It's the result of myriad actions and influences And understanding those influences provides important context for planning ahead. In other words, 
path dependency is enormous, and it's not just a function of a single roll of the dice. It's the whole series. Absolutely. And also, from the advice perspective, I, part of the reason I put it that way is because boy, I just get this emotional reaction myself. Like I look at the market, it's down 5% or it's, I look at my portfolio value and it's not what it was six months ago. It's so easy to get caught up in that regret of what happened and I could have done things differently or if I'd put this trade on on Tuesday, I would have made more money and have that dictate what you do today. And that is stupid. <laughs> what you do today should be based on the markets today. And the markets today are not the markets that were there two weeks ago when you didn't put on that options trade that would have been brilliant. So the ability to let didn't go. We, didn't we talk about that options trade? <laughs> my my regret was not going. I should have gone bigger. It's killing me. And I'm <laughs> but, looking at but the, this. Is the, but this is the point. That's, you're you're, that's you're, hindsight. You're, but you're hung up on this. Right. And the reality is like, no, And no, it's no. a rounding error the to my portfolio. The only constraint you should have when you're thinking about your money today day is yeah. what are the transaction costs of not being in what I'm in right now? Right. Because if the answer was zero, right. then every single morning you should start in cash and make a whole new set of decisions about what you're invested in today. If well, they, in a purely frictionless world. Uh huh. I, I said we were done with ETFs. Wasn't there a new ETF that wants to invest? The Knights. Yeah. From the close to the open. And spy, night shares. Yeah. I, I, mean, I love to that me, idea. See, I'm fascinated by people not understanding. Well, isn't that double or triple the amount of time? Isn't that just time compounded? If we're open from 9.30 to 4, six and a half hours, the you're closed a lot more. You would think you would be up more over time, right? Right. Well, except, of course, liquidity and right. all sorts of other issues like that. that but. That's kind of interesting. All right. So the biggest question I saved for towards the end here, which is, what do we get wrong about human beings? Oh, boy. Uh, I think there are a couple of big ones, the, and these are fairly recent revelations to me, um, and some of them are slightly philosophical. I think recognizing the inherent unknowability of reality is an important first step. You know, you mentioned the 200 millisecond lag on, right. on, on perception. Um, Anil Seth has a great book called is it Being Human or Being You. I always get it wrong. Um, he's the one who put forth the scientific proof that effectively we hallucinate reality. Like what goes on in our heads is a model of the molecular world around us. Do we want to call that a hallucination or is it just our model of the universe? Well, like if you imagine this coffee cup is here, right? Mm -hmm. You're already perceiving it delayed from its existence here. Plus it, it looks solid when we know and, 99% right, of it is empty At a quantum level, space. we know this is all empty right. space, et cetera. And that can all get very woo-woo and who cares? Right. And so that's fine. It can be woo-woo and who cares? But you have to start from there and build up. And if you accept that fundamentally I cannot prove the table exists, then get really worked up about Tesla earnings is even more ridiculous, right? Because now when you have an opinion about Tesla earnings, it's based on a set of information that is incredibly incomplete. I don't right. care whether you're the most storied Tesla analyst on the world. I don't care if you're Elon Musk. Elon Musk on the conference call talking about earnings has no idea what's going on on the floor right now. Right. For all he knows, his factory is burning down while he's right. talking, right? So we're inherently always wrong about the state of anything that we are asserting truth on. So it's about being less wrong when we're trying to make these assessments about, I, I like to say the future is inherently unknown and unknowable. It's, You're saying the present is inherently the inherent, unknown. Yeah, absolutely unknowable. It's all probabilistic, right? And you know, fundamentally, you start thinking about quantum computing, right? Quantum computing largely ends up being about 
convincing yourself you're not sure, right? Because you can't actually measure the state of a qubit in real time because then it, the wave collapses and it's no longer a quantum computer. Right. So managing uncertainty turns out not just to be a managerial tool for guys who sit around and talk about money. It's actually the fabric of the universe is based on managing probability, not understanding certainty. Mm -hmm. So if, if you approach everything from that perspective that, okay, whether or not I'm going to go on the subway to get down to the hotel, that there's an inherent level of uncertainty in that journey and that I have to be willing to accept it. It's like, oh, okay, well, 65% of the time subway is going to be faster, but here's all the things that could go wrong right. there. 25% of the time it's slower and 2% of the time I'm going to get hit by a car there, right. or whatever. Right. It, so I think that that is, uh, you know, there's a level of humility that comes from acknowledging the inherent unknowability of whatever mm -hmm. it is you think you're an expert on. Um, but at the same time, I think thinking probabilistically, I mean, I think Jim O'Shaughnessy talks about, you know, learning how to think probabilistically in a probabilistic world as opposed to deterministically. Mm -hmm. And that I think is very true. So, you know, learning to understand to think in bets, I think is really important. Annie Duke's book yep. on this, I think is one of the key thinking. pieces of reading people should have because it, it, it makes it very human, right? This idea of thinking in bets, thinking in probabilities, probably the best thing online poker has ever done to the country. Hmm. That's interesting. And now I know why you and I get along so well, because we both have the same belief system about how little is actually knowable and why probabilistic thinking is the only way to approach risk assets. Yeah, I mean, at the, at the base, all beliefs are wrong, right? By definition, if I can't prove that I'm in this room, if I can't prove that fundamental reality is phenomenologically true. I could prove the table is real by just accelerating your skull towards it rapidly. Does that disprove it or, or am I being too literal? And I'm not being sarcastic. Here. No, no. Working with material objects is where everybody falls down on this. The problem mm -hmm. is like what's actually going on when you're holding onto this table is just a set of somatic inputs and visual inputs. So and the way we perceive inputs. it is sufficient right. for our purposes, but objectively isn't real. Exactly. Isn't, right. as, in, as a species, right, we have learned these affordances, ways to interact with the environment. I am fairly certain if I hit a table, it will always be there. Right. That is, of course, not true when you walk into a really well-made illusion. It's mm -hmm. not true when you put on a VR headset, right. right? So we're accepting this version of our perception as somehow phenomenologically real. But when we put on the VR headset, we have a brain space where we're like, well, I know the table's not really there. But then again, most people put on that VR headset and they fall down when they go to lean on the table that's not there. Oh, is that true? Oh, you've, I mean, you've seen the video. You've watched millions of these videos of people doing hysterically stupid things with VR helmets on. Well, it's when you look at them when you're not in the same VR. Exactly. And you're but like, what? they're idiots. No, they're not. They are perceiving a different reality than you are. So and their model got confused and thought that the table was real because they're so used to seeing a table and thinking the table is real. And I still think of VR as kind of blocky and not, you know, when the technology accelerates to the holodeck from Star Trek, where the differences then are imperceptible. Like then it's like then, this. Then, right, how then do you know what's real right. and what's not? And, and then, I'm not one of these guys who's like, we're all living a simulation. I'm not, yeah, I don't want to go into I that. I hate that argument. I, whatever. I think they're entertaining. But my point is, from a very practical real-world perspective, let's bring it back to dollars and cents. You have to have the humility of your convictions. Like, I look at my Schwab account right now, and I say, oh, I get the snapshot of reality of what it is. It's in these things right now for reasons that I I had good reasons to put them in the emerging markets fund or whatever. 
but every day I should be asking myself whether that's still true because mm -hmm. the world changes rather quickly if you haven't noticed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You and I could do this for Forever. another four hours. <laughs> and in fact, we have um, on, on a canoe, on a lake, talking about this endlessly. But we only have the studio for another few minutes. So <laughs> I'm going to jump to my favorite okay, questions. Great. But I'm going to mix a few of these up, and they're not going to be the same questions. I think um, the what are you streaming these days is getting a little long in the tooth if I'm asking about video so i want to mix it up and ask you what music are you oh i've been to? on a big music tear lately one of the it turns out on twitter one of my most engaged threads i've ever done is i just sort of post a new song like every couple days mm -hmm. in there um i'm a big believer that you have to be paying attention to the now if you want to have any hope of understanding the now mm -hmm. so i try to only listen to new music really um, it doesn't mean that i don't occasionally toss on an old bowie tune that i love or something like right. that but four to six hours a day, I'm listening as much as I can to brand new music. And I no tend kidding. to really listen to, to basically college radio. I've right. been listening to college radio since like 1983, uh, and I sort of never stopped. Now, most of that is intermediated either through Sirius XMU on Sirius XM, mm -hmm. uh, where fine podcasts are held like this one sometimes, mm -hmm. or uh, various blogs. Like, remember blogs? There were big, big music remember. blogs, but big music blogs back in the sure. day, like Gorilla vs. Bear, Brooklyn Vegan. These guys are all still around. Right. Um, and they're amazing, and they're an incredible source of new music. And I think that we're in a golden age of independent music, like in the last two or three years. The there pandemic's has, been phenomenal. For there music. has been a number of articles about streaming has gone classic rock, 30, 40, 50 year old music, and new music has a really difficult time being discoverable on all the streaming services. It is. Very so hard. if you want to discover new music, how do you do that? So Gorilla vs. Bear and BrooklynVegan.com, both of them mm -hmm. are, are blogs where every day, like literally, I think one of them posts. Here are the 26 songs that were released today, every day. And, and you can over work and over and with over. new music in the background. It's not terribly distracting. No, I mean, I skip stuff I don't like. I don't right. want to pretend that I just like universally love everything. But, you know, somebody who's putting up a playlist that's new music every week. You know, mm -hmm. there's a top 40 alternative charts that I listen to that's new every week based on college radio airplay. And so I'll just put that on repeat. It's the same playlist. I just keep it rolling right. and repeat. But it's new stuff every single day. The stuff coming out of particularly like Philadelphia and Chicago in the new music scene, um, all Zoomers, like all kids in their 20s, mm -hmm. just amazing stuff. Like a couple bands of note, um, Wet Leg is one that I'm a big fan of, very much a Sonic Youth kind of vibe. Horse Girl out of Chicago, again, a very Sonic Youth kind of vibe. Philadelphia, there's so many bands down there. Alex G just dropped an incredible album down there. Um, uh, you know, Dead, D-E-H-D, another incredible band. They're out of Chicago as well. But these little DIY music scenes in, in a couple of major cities just unbelievable creative stuff. Very, a lot of it's very experimental. Fourteen minute songs. I, you I'm know. hearing a lot of alt rock and new synth, but not uh, hip hop. 
uh, in that list. I don't listen to a ton of what I would consider mainstream hip hop. Um, it's very I, distracting if you're trying to read or write. Exactly. That's that's the big issue is that the lyrical it's content. Right. You the can't write with words really important. in your ears. Um, I will listen to hip hop generally on headphones like sitting down in a chair with headphones on to listen, which I, I don't think that many people do. And I wish more people did. Um, but, you know, in that space, like Run the Jewels, I'm a huge Run the Jewels fan. And that that's more of like an indie hip hop artist. Um, so that kind of stuff is a little bit more my jam. I was really into hip hop back in the you know eighties nineties era, but you know not not at the level I know some of your boys are at at, uh, at Riddle. So. Um, yeah, my my hip hop stopped with Paul's Boutique from the Beastie which, Boys. Yeah, I, I mean we're both Beastie. Which really, fans. which really is the ultimate for you. That's the peak, right? Yeah. I mean, but. The law changed, and you couldn't sample yeah. the way they. I mean, they sample Beatles and Sgt. Pepper. You couldn't do that today without being sued. Well, the interesting thing is now in the DIY community, in the in the sort of true indie community, that stuff is really rampant. But it's happening outside of the boundaries of the big record companies, right? It's literally, you know, one artist in Philadelphia calling up another artist in Chicago, saying, "Hey, I love the beat you put down on that half-made track you dropped on Bandcamp. Can I sample that in my next thing?" And that's happening like crazy. Uh-huh. But they're not going back to the old Blue Note, you know, archives like the Beastie Boys got to. They're so, not getting to sample a whole lot of love. So, so it's funny. If I'm writing and I want some music on in the background, I'll go to a weekly show by John Pizzarelli called Radio Deluxe. And it's the classic American songbook from the 30s, 40s, 50s and jazz. And I can have that operating in the background and it doesn't interfere with my ability to read or write. The songs are familiar and it's more music. It's more um, music than lyrics. So the jazz side of it allows me to yeah. to function. I think what you're describing would be really hard to work with in terms of uh, writing. It totally depends on the kind of work that I'm doing in the moment. If I'm reading academic work, if I'm looking at red legislation and and you know reading news and catching up on Twitter, and I, I can listen to anything. Right. If I'm actively taking the words out of my head and putting them on paper, generally I'm in complete silence. Yeah, that. But that I makes tend to compose in my head and then write all at once. So I'll write something in my head for three or four days, and then I'll put five thousand words out in thirty minutes. Yeah, you, you, me, uh, Morgan Housel says the same thing. That the most important part of writing is the couple of days before you. Yeah, sit it's down. usually to, the most important part of writing to me is the two-hour walk at 6 a.m. Right. That's the most important part of writing. Then I sit down at 8 and start writing, and then that's the easy part. My wife makes fun of me, but if I'm giving a presentation, that gets written in the shower. Yeah, 100%. And, and she's like, what are you saying in the shower? I'm like, oh, I'm just rehearsing. I have to be moving. For me, it's there's some, there's a somatic component to it. I need soap. It. Soap and shampoo. That really, <laughs> that really helps the, get the, the get articulation. Get massage right, the head. That's right. Get moving. Uh, so I normally ask about, my second question is about mentors. So I, I want to ask this question because from Barclays to ETF.com to Vetify, uh, who, who helped shape your career? Oh, my gosh. Uh, a million people. Uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, not necessarily people who will know, but like uh, there was a, a, a guy who was sort of my uncle growing up who was a Vietnam like Vietnam vet mortar sergeant and uh, had blown off his hand. And he was just sort of growing up in Lenox. He was an uncle of a friend of mine. And uh, he he was probably the the model that I put in my head when I'm sort of like, what would so and so do? You know, mm-hmm. it would definitely be Al Robertson. 
um, who was a businessman of some note. But in terms of my direct career, you know, I look back at those early days at um, Wells Fargo Nico, and for sure, I, I needed to be taught a lot of stuff back then. Um, and I give Patty Dunn and Fred Grauer um, and Blake Grossman a lot of a lot of credit for that um, because I was very young. They're all probably 10, 15 years my senior at the time, and they were they were incredibly important. But um, honestly, if I pick one person, probably Matt Hogan, mm-hmm. who's 10 years my junior. I was going to say. You're... I've been working with him since 96 or 7. He was a biotech analyst when I was running money. He and I just have stayed incredibly close over the years. And if there's like one person who I was like, if I had a business decision, like career choice, ethical quandary, something like that, there's no question he'd be the first person I call. He seems to be a very sensible, thoughtful person and not given to, you know. He's, uh, he's a main guide. I mean, that's that's what his that's how he started in life. He was literally in college, got his guiding certificate in Maine. And we know what those guys are sure. like, right? That's a the, tough gig. The most practical people right. on the god dang planet. How do you survive <laughs> and not get trampled by an elk? Yeah, I yeah mean, exactly. Or attacked by a bear when you're out hunting moose or bear. It's all about reality. They're, talk about recognizing reality, the penalty there for being wrong is death. <laughs> right. It's not my yeah. account is down 6%. It's, oh, a bunch of bears disembowel that's, me. And- that's why I'm such a fan of being outside in general, honestly, is because like if you're three miles in on the Appalachian Trail in the middle of the woods... And like a storm as, comes up. That's as real as the world gets, yeah. right? When you're at a cell phone coverage standing in your sneakers in the middle of the woods, that's as real as the world gets. There's no bodies. There's no people. There's no stuff. There's no man-made anything. That's base state reality. I've had this conversation with people who out on the water on boats. It's like, listen, you can't flip on Channel 2 and get the weather forecast. You need the marine forecast because if it's six-foot swells and 40-mile-an-hour winds coming up, you need to know that and basically stay in the marina and not right. go out. Not, oh, it's going to be sunny out today. That's sort of Dunning-Kruger, hey, you need to really know what you don't know and not assume you're good at this. Outdoors, Mother Nature is a cruel mistress. There is no fooling around. Well, and I, I run into this all the time. I live in the woods up in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. I run into New Yorkers who come up to go hiking all the time who are heading off cliffs. Right. Like, I mean, it's just almost every hike that I go out, and particularly this time of year, it's so easy to get lost if you're not used to walking around in the leaves in the woods. And just just this last weekend, I was walking around just on a trail, and I was just like, "What the heck are these people doing going over that ridge line?" I'm like, "Hello, don't go. That's not a <laughs> don't go there. One more well, step is a doozy." Yeah, they'll figure it out. Let's talk about books we've mentioned a lot. Give us some of your favorites and what you're reading currently. Oh boy, uh, the most impressive book I've read in the last couple of years is uh, "The Matter with Things" by uh, Ian McGilchrist, mm-hmm. which is 1,500 pages. It's big, right? It's 1,500 pages of neuroscience and psychology, I would say, is probably the best way to describe it. How do you attack a book like that? You don't sit down and start plowing through it. Oh, no. So, like, we haven't talked about this. How to read a book. Do you know the book, How to Read a Book? I think I do, because I read a lot of books. No, no, there's a book called How to Read a Book. Okay, so let's talk about it. So, How to Read a Book is something that I was handed when I was... You need a pamphlet. Eight years old or something like that. And it basically outlines... It's written in the 30s or something like that. It's a very straightforward system for breaking down a book. And it starts with like, okay, you have been handed a book. Here's what you do in the first 10 minutes. And it's not for fiction where you're worried about spoiling something. This is really for nonfiction. And there's a process they go through of like, okay, you read the first four paragraphs of the introduction. You go through and you read all of the chapter headings and, you know, usually through the table of contents to try to understand the flow. If there's something you don't understand, go read the first paragraph of 
that chapter so that mm -hmm. you now understand the flow. Then go read the introduction to the concluding chapter. And by that point, you should understand, does this book have anything in it for me? Right. Mm -hmm. And in the in that modality, you probably reject half the books you open. Right. You can you can do that in, a, in the bookstore, literally. Right. That's a because what you're just uh, it's funny you say that because what you're describing used to be my bookstore routine. Exactly. So that's a le that would be a level one read. Mm -hmm. A level two read is with whatever speed you want. You consume the available content of the book itself. So mm -hmm. that's literally just reading the book um, now. I tend to do that very quickly. That Same. kind of reading I can be very, very quick with, and that's a level two read. I don't mean speed reading. I mean just turn pages yes. understand what it all in. Understand what's important. You're not going to read every single word on the page, but you're going to get the gist of every major point made in the book. Right? You're doing your own spark. Unless it's a Bill Bryson or an Ed Chancellor or somebody whose writing is dense and deep and you really need to— Think about each sentence in each paragraph. Yeah, well, so even in the modality of how to read a book, a level two read, even that you would let skip through a little bit because the objective of a level two read is to understand everything that the book has to offer you. Uh -huh. Right. So like, what are all its key points? What are its you know salient observations? What are its facts that you haven't gotten? A level three read, which I can say I've probably done for 10 books in my life, mm -hmm. is when you go through and every concept you don't understand, you go down the rabbit hole. They mention a book that you haven't read, you go read that book. That was grad school for me. Right. That was and, and that's a very rare thing to do there. So on a book that's this big, the honest truth is you start I start at level one. Now my level one read on the matter matter with things probably took me a week mm -hmm. because it's fifteen hundred pages. So just to go through and read the opening paragraphs of each chapter and read the conclusions and be like, nope, I didn't get that. I have to go back. Without actually reading the book, it probably took me a week. Then Tom Morgan from KCP and I spent, I want to say, three months. Tom has, by the way, a fascinating Twitter feed. I'm he's gonna... phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's way out there on this stuff. He's my, my Sherpa on the sort of phenomenology and consciousness end of things. But then we, we sort of were going through it together, which helped a lot. Um, and we would bounce ideas back and forth with each other and compare notes with where we were. And I did a full level two read of that book over about a three-month window, reading wow. it every day. Give me one more book, because we've talked about so many already. Uh, I'm, how about this? I'll go with a comic book, Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis. It's my, one of my favorite comic books. Could not be more relevant for the modern world right now about a journalist named Spider Jerusalem covering the apocalypse in a major city, <laughs> and it feels like it was written about today, today. <laughs> Interesting. Our final two questions, what sort of advice would you give to a college grad who thinks they want to be a financial futurist? <laughs> well, probably invent a better title. But to do like the kind of work that I'm doing, the biggest advice I have is be curious, right? Mm -hmm. Never allow a good rabbit hole to go unexplored. You know, we've had conversations about that phrase has come up. How much time do you spend down various rabbit holes? I mean, all my all time. day. Right? I mean, pretty much any time that I'm not doing something else. I'm like if I if I have something in front of me and I'm reading. 90% of the time, it's something that is way deeper than it needs to be because I really want to understand it at a core level. Okay, so let me fast forward. I actually, by the time this comes out, this will be old news, but I did a blog post about how the Fed is causing inflation. The Fed, by raising rates, 
is causing the CPI inflation prints to be higher because the crazy way BLS measures the cost of shelter. And the only way I was able to put that together, and I'm bringing this up because I know you'll appreciate it, is because I lived in that rabbit hole during the 2000s, but I was arguing BLS is underreporting inflation because of— Oh, we've had that conversation. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But that was in the 2000s. So the Fed had taken rates down too quickly, too low, and that led to a spike in the cost of shelter, which the BLS reports the inverse of. Fast forward 20 years, the 15 years, yeah. now the Fed is raising rates, and that leads the BLS CPI to over-report inflation because the way they measure owner's equivalent rent, because for many people, a home is an asset, but if you're a renter and it's going up, how do you measure that? And it's not this grand conspiracy. It's just a complex modeling problem, which, as you've described, we get wrong. Yeah, and I think that those are endemic. They're everywhere. I mean, during the GameStop run-up, people were talking about, well, we had to make cap. You know, why did DTC have to have a capital call on Citadel, and this must be somebody buying Ken Griffin a yacht? It's a yacht. scam. You know, it's a it, scam. And it's like, Robin again, Hood, they're so us. easy to, to disprove that, but only if you've already spent a year down the rabbit hole of understanding right. capital requirements at settlement bureaus. We, we, all, <laughs> we all talk about our priors, but if your priors were down the rabbit hole, then you have a frame of reference to understand these complex, endemically the, wrong with the, with the enormous caveat that everything you knew about financial markets no in 2005 is probably right. wrong. It's now, oh, right. Right. So, and P.S. As long as you know that. So first, in, in the post, I cite something I had quoted from 2013 from, I think it was a Cleveland Fed or an Atlanta Fed look at OER. And then fortunately, my, my buddy Invictus said, hey, you know that the Federal Reserve and the maybe it was the Cleveland Fed just did a piece on this like three days ago. So I was able to cite like, oh, and here's the latest change that they're changing the they're, the Fed. Everybody's aware that this is a problem, that they're changing the way they measure this. But this all goes back to uh, we're wrong. The models are wrong. We ha have to get it right. All right. Final question. What is it that you know about the world of investing today or the world today that you wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you were first starting out? Oh, well, I mean, it's a beating a dead horse here, but that I was wrong. Right? And, and whatever the question is, the answer is I was wrong, right? That, that, uh, you ha that, that fundamental shift in my perception, which really only happened in the last three or four years, the pandemic helped a lot, to recognize the inherent fallibility of human experience and approach every conversation with the humility that that implies. If I could go back and beat that into my 25-year-old self, I would do it in a heartbeat. Fantastic. Dave, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Dave Nodick, financial futurist for Vetify. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 440 we've done over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, and now YouTube, or wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team who helps put these conversations together each week. Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Wold is our producer. Sean Russo is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.